It's great to be with you again, as Pastor Mike mentioned. I did preach for New Hope a couple years ago, and I, we were in a different building, and no one was in the room. And so it's much, much better to be able to see your faces, uh, even though this light can be blinding sometimes. Um, I'm excited to be speaking in this series on 10 questions because what New Hope is all about is trying to engage with the hard questions to actually help us have more confidence in our faith, more confidence in the scriptures. And it's a privilege to be speaking on the subject, can we take the Bible seriously? Can we take the Bible seriously? The Bible is one of these books that People have in their houses, you know, you might have like a family Bible, something from your grandparents or something from your heritage. And yet, we know the Bible is full of difficult things that we wrestle with. And if you pay close attention to the reading of that scriptural passage from John chapter 6, you will notice that Jesus says things that are difficult, off-putting, controversial And that one of the reasons I chose this passage is because Jesus doesn't hold back with hard information, with hard teachings, with hard questions, and he invites engagement. He invites our curiosity. He invites our questions. He doesn't shove them aside. He doesn't tell us to just be quiet and listen. He wants engagement. But as we know from that passage, many people wrestled with it, and some of them even left. My undergraduate major was in public relations. When I read the Gospels, sometimes I wonder what it would have been like to be Jesus' PR agent. (laughs) Could you imagine that? If you were traveling around with Jesus, and your objective was to basically keep him out of trouble, right? You're watching his socials. You want to make sure that he doesn't drop too far below the popularity line. Jesus was a controversial person. I'm not going to make comparisons to Elon Musk or Charlie Sheen, if you remember him. But have you thought about some of the seemingly strange choices that Jesus makes in his ministry where people simply stopped following him? In today's language, his ratings dropped. So I want to set up John chapter 6 and reflect on what it would have been like to be his PR agent. John chapter 5, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. So I'm imagining his PR agent is saying, good job, Jesus. People are impressed. But maybe ixnay on the healing on the Sabbath say, because that is kind of a no-no. After all, some people are trying to kill you. John chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus does the feeding of the multitudes. Five loaves, two fish, and there's leftovers. We all love leftovers. PR agents thinking, this is good. Keep it up. We're getting a lot of positive engagement. People love free food. (laughs) Chapter 6, verse 16, Jesus walks on water. That's pretty cool, but Jesus, how about we get a crowd next time or at least put on a GoPro? (laughs) Chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus gives his famous teaching, I am the bread of life. PR agent saying, good branding, keep it coming. And then Jesus gives some teachings that are off-putting. And people are wondering, can you clarify? He's saying things that start to push against people's opinions and values. 
And so I, as a PR agent, would want to say, Jesus, can you clarify and really hit home for them your message? And what does Jesus say? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. (laughs) PR person saying, Jesus, what are you doing to me, man? Help me help you. And then that fateful verse, chapter 6, verse 66. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The PR person says, I give up. The reason I chose this passage is because it pulls out very well the fact that the Bible isn't just full of things that make us smile and make us happy. There are difficult teachings in the Bible. And the Bible can be confusing, even offensive. The Bible, as we all know, I'm sure, is a bestseller, right? It's sold perhaps billions of copies throughout history. Mark Twain once said, a classic is a book that everyone owns and no one reads. For example, I've tried to read the Brothers Karamazov about 20 times. I've made it to about page three. Maybe you've tried that with War and Peace or another classic. But why is it that we have so many Bibles sold and so few of them actually read? Why is that? Maybe it's because of the language, the old-timey King James kind of language that we sometimes encounter with the Bible, but also the reason we have this 10-question series is because we know that the Bible can sometimes come across as antiquated or racist, sexist, violent, oppressive. And just like Jesus' bread speech, it could be off-putting. But another reason that I chose this John 6 passage is for how it ends. I'm imagining hundreds of people walking away from Jesus, saying, he's not worth it. And what does Jesus do? He turns to the 12th, and he says, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do? And I love the response. comes from Simon Peter, obviously. He's got to open his mouth. Simon Peter says, where else are we going to go? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. What is Peter saying? He's saying, I don't understand some of the things that you say. I don't understand most of the things that you say, Jesus. But I know there's something special about your person, your words, your mission, and what you're going to do for the world. Peter, who spent all this time with Jesus, didn't fully understand what Jesus was all about. And yet, in one of these most difficult moments, where it would have been easy to join that crowd leaving, he says, I don't get everything, but there's something special, something attractive, something unique in what you are all about, in your message, in your person. I grew up in an unchurched family. Uh, My parents are Hindu. And when I was 16, someone gave me a Bible, my first Bible. At that point in life, I had no idea what Christianity was about. I'll, I'll be honest with you, I didn't even know Easter was a religious holiday. I just thought it was bunnies and candy and Hallmark. 
I was clueless, and someone gave me a Bible, and I thought, might as well give it a try. So what did I do? I started in Genesis. I just opened it, and I just started in Genesis. Now, people sometimes tell you that's a bad idea, but I actually was captivated. I started with Genesis. I started reading these stories. I started reading about sin, and I was going through some things in my life, and the Bible was able to put expression to some of the challenges I was facing with sin in my life as a teenager. And I started reading and reading and reading and eventually made it to the Gospels. And it was in the Gospels that really hit home. I'm fully accepted by God. I can have victory over sin. And I can have good news in the work of Jesus Christ. For a couple of years, I read the Bible. I worshiped. I prayed. I had full confidence in the Bible. And then I went to college. I went to a secular college. And I took a religion course. And the professor was like an ex-Christian And he started raising all these questions about the Bible, especially about the Gospels, talking about how the stories aren't true and this is made up. And I didn't lose my faith, but I definitely wrestled with those questions. Can we trust the Gospels? Do they really communicate to us the real Jesus? Did Jesus walk on earth? Did he die on a cross? Did he raise from the dead? I started to have doubts. I devoted my life to answering questions about the Bible. I finished my degree. I did four years full-time of seminary, three years of a PhD. I invested years and years and years. And I can tell you today, I have confidence in the Bible. That's one of the reasons that I want to share with you today why and how we can take the Bible seriously. Now, I teach a 30-hour course on the Gospels for seminary students. Pastor John said I don't get 30 hours this morning. I get 30 minutes. (laughs) And so we have other resources that we can point you to to follow up on. I encourage you to read the Confronting Christianity book, to listen to our cutting room floor podcast and to pick up some other resources. I'll be mentioning some in my sermon today. But I'm just going to give you a few things that will boost your confidence in the Gospels this morning. I can't share everything with you that I want to share, but I want to be able to give you some measure of confidence in the Gospels so that you can know that the Bible really translates to us the things of God. When it comes to the Gospels, the first thing that I tell my students and what I want to communicate to you today is the Gospels are written in the genre of ancient biography. The Gospels are written in the genre of ancient biography. It's important when you engage any piece of literature that you understand what genre it is because then you're understanding what the author was intending to do. And scholars have long debated what genre the Gospels are, and the current consensus, which I think is correct, is they fit the category of ancient biography. For example, there was an ancient writer named Plutarch who was alive around the same time as Jesus, and he wrote an important set of biographies called Parallel Lives, about 50 Greek and Roman figures. He surveyed their lives, including people like Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. Why am I telling you this? Because there were certain rules that you follow when you're using a genre. And I want to mention three rules that were generally used by ancient biographies in this time period. Number one, 
a biography is a story of a life, not just a fact book. So a, a biography doesn't just list out bullet point facts about a person. Here's, when, here's the date they were born. Here's the date they went to school and so forth. It actually tells you about their life as a story. Number two, an ancient biography focuses on the main character as a role model, someone that you should look to for how to shape your life, which is why they picked great people like Julius Caesar. In the case of the Gospels, the writers are saying, we feel like Jesus is the person that you should center your life on. Thirdly, and most importantly for our conversation today, ancient biographies were meant to draw from the real historical life of that figure. The question then, if you're an ancient biographer, is how do you come to know the life of a person? Keep in mind, this was before newspapers, before YouTube. So what did you do if you wanted to uh, obtain information about a person? You would consult eyewitnesses. You would consult eyewitnesses. It was an oral culture, and you trusted people above all to convey properly the life of a person. And we have evidence within the New Testament Gospels that they cared that the information that they passed on was historically accurate. Let me read to you just a snippet from Luke chapter 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. If you wonder, can I trust the Gospels to really tell me about the real Jesus? Luke right away says, I want you to have full confidence that I did my homework on this. Another piece of the puzzle of understanding the historical reliability of the Gospels is when they were written. If today, if I wanted to write a biography of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, right, I'm writing about somebody in the distant past. But what's interesting about the New Testament writers is they were writing, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, within a couple of decades or a few decades of the life of Jesus, what we call living memory. Why is that important? Because when their gospels were published, so to speak, the eyewitnesses could fact check them. They couldn't just make stuff up. There would be people alive that could refute what they said. So they were careful to make sure they got the information right. I want to make a second point that helps us think through the historical reliability of the Gospels. I want to mention a book that you might find helpful. You might pick this up at some point. It's by Peter Williams, a British scholar, and it's called Can We Trust the Gospels? It's a short book. I like short books. It's a short book. And one thing that Williams does in this book is he compares the New Testament Gospels, which were written in the first century, to Gospels that were written a little bit later on. 
So, did you know in the second and third century, you know, 100, 200 years after Jesus, other gospels were put out there in the world. You may have heard of some of these, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Peter. These sometimes come up in the news, and sometimes there are these conspiracies that the church has buried a gospel and has not let information out. Um, What we realized, though, is 40 or 50 of these gospels emerged after the time of the apostles. The church has rejected these as what we call apocryphal, meaning they don't belong as part of Scripture. And they seem to, they may have a little bit of historical information, but by and large, they were fabricated. They're false. And what Williams does is he compares the New Testament gospel to some of these later gospels, and he makes some really interesting observations. The gospels that are written later on are very sparse on specific information, information around geography, names, and places. Whereas the New Testament Gospels, not only are they very lengthy with lots of information about Jesus, but very specific information about people and places. And Williams says, if you're going to make up stories about Jesus, you're going to be really vague about locations. But when we look at the New Testament Gospels, the writers don't shy away from naming very specific granular information like small towns that we can verify Bethany, Bethphage, Gennesaret, specific locations within cities like Golgotha or Solomon's Colonnade. And this is really fascinating. He has a chart in here that links Jewish names mentioned in the Gospels to archaeological records of the popularity of those names in particular regions. And what, what, what Williams notices is that the regions that these names are used in the Gospels match pretty pretty closely, almost identical to our archaeological record of where those Jewish names were popular in the ancient world. Names like Eleazar, Yohanan, and Judah. What does this tell us? The New Testament writers were not shy about giving lots of detail that could be checked. The closer you live and write to the era of that person that you're writing on, the more you can add in those real-life features of their life. The further you are away, you're going to do generalizations because you don't have all that information. I want to, before I move on, I want to mention one thing that skeptics sometimes bring up about the New Testament Gospels. Skeptics will sometimes say, if the stories of Jesus are true, why do we have four Gospels instead of one? They sometimes talk about it like interviewing people that have watched some kind of accident or crime, and they say, you're going to interview person one, person two, person three, person four, and when you get the four Gospels, they have these little differences between them. How do you explain that? And actually, in the early church, there was some embarrassment about this. There was some embarrassment. Why do we have four Gospels? Why not just one? I want to mention another resource that has been helpful for me in thinking about this. This is a book called Four Gospels, One Jesus by another British scholar named Richard Burridge. And Burridge actually has a helpful analogy for thinking about what we call the fourfold tradition, why we have four Gospels instead of one. Why didn't they just choose Matthew? Because he was the most popular Gospel. Or John. Or Luke. Why did they have four? And he gives an interesting illustration. 
He talks about how Winston Churchill had a country home in the city of Kent. And in this country home, uh, Churchill filled the rooms with paintings and portraits. In fact, Churchill himself liked to paint, sometimes self-portraits. And Birds talks about how you will find a number of Churchill images in different rooms that are similar and different. Here, Bird says, in one room is a picture of the statesman in conference with his allies, including President Roosevelt. His face is grim and determined for the fate of the world rests upon his shoulders. Around the corner, Bird says, is another picture, a painting done by Churchill himself. The room was then host to a happy family gathering. Churchill is dressed casually, smiling at friends and family around the table. And you go to another room, Burge says, and you find a photograph of Churchill at rest. He sits in a basket chair in the gardens of the Villa Choisy on the shores of Lac Le Mans in Switzerland. What does this illustration tell us, Burge asks? Just as these portraits are different, at the same time they capture one and the same person. In these simple portraits, just as with the Gospels, we have diversity and continuity, inspiration and selectivity, artistic license, but within limits. When it comes to the Gospels, the question that is presented to us is, are we willing to trust these writers? You see, if I got up here and talked about the Bible and how it's historically reliable, that doesn't settle the question at the end of the day because each of us then has to make a choice of faith. I can't answer all your questions about everything in the Bible, hard as I may try. We don't have all the historical data we want to answer every single one of our questions. The whole purpose of this series is we do want to engage the big questions, but at the end of the day, it still requires faith. When I was in college, I did some missionary work in Eastern Europe in the former, former Yugoslavian Republic of Macedonia. We'd be working with college students, and at that time, this is the early 2000s, uh, that country had just seen the fall of communism, and most of the young people that we were encountering were atheists. They knew nothing about the Bible. And here we were presenting them with Bibles, and they had all these questions that we couldn't answer about the Bible, where it came from, whether it's reliable. And we tried. But at the end of the day, we placed the Bible in their hands and we said, we, we want you to read the Bible and pray and God will show up. That was what we had to rely on. It couldn't be our words of wisdom. It couldn't be our historical or academic knowledge. At the end of the day, it had to be faith. What I wanted to do today was give you some confidence in the Bible that you can say, okay, these writers were trying to tell us the real story of God. But for many of us, we already recognize and trust scripture, but we need a challenge to take it more seriously. I want to offer you three ways of not reading the Bible and then offer you three ways to, to take it more seriously. 
I'm hoping these will be kind of fun, too. How not to read the Bible, number one, what I call the fortune cookie Bible. The fortune cookie Bible is where we just open up the Bible, you know, for, for kind of the thought of the day, and we just pluck out a verse to make us feel good. Do you remember the book from when I was a kid, Chicken Soup for the Soul? Anyone remember that book? Those were fun. We had a whole big stack of them. I don't know whatever happened to those books. But uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul, sometimes we treat the Bible as Chicken Soup for the Soul. We want to read it for just a little bit of, little bit of a boost. And we don't want to take it too seriously. We just want something to kind of glance over while we're having our morning coffee. Like a fortune cookie, it's forgettable. And yet, for the early Christians, and for the Jews also, who, who recognized and trusted these scriptures, they were actually called to take it very seriously. There's a text from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy called the Shema, which is a prayer that's used by Jews today as well. And you may be familiar with it because Jesus quotes it in the New Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And it goes on to encourage Israel to meditate on Scripture day and night. Talk about it when you're walking around. Think about it when you wake up and when you go to sleep. It's more than a fortune cookie or a verse of the day. The second problematic way that we sometimes use the Bible is what I call the afterlife Bible, where we just care about the Bible to get us into heaven. All I want is the get-out-of-jail-free card, and I just will use the Bible in whatever way it takes to get that. And for many of us, that means really not using it at all. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, Gospel of Matthew, says, yes, the future is important, but he says, tomorrow has enough worries of itself. Think about today also. Focus on the day. The Bible wasn't written just to prepare us to go to heaven. The Bible was written to help guide our lives today as well. The third problematic way of using the Bible may be the most challenging for many of us, and that's what I call the My Values Bible, where we use the Bible as a mirror to reflect back our own values where we say, the Bible reinforces my political views. The Bible reinforces my cultural preferences. And then we're just basically using God as a puppet towards our own means. This often happens when you hear someone say, my God would never, or my Jesus would never, emphasis on the word my. Where we take the Bible as something that's just going to reinforce what we want to hear. But the Bible is actually meant to both comfort and provoke. I regularly teach uh, a course on the book of James. And if you actually sit down and read the book of James and you think about what it's saying, it should be very troubling. Because one of the main messages is pointing out the problem of wealth and greed. And I, and I normally teach a group of pastors, and I say, how are you actually able to preach the book of James in your churches without getting into really hot water? It is a really challenging book. Or the problem of gossip, right? The book of James draws out all these problems. And I think sometimes we avoid these texts because we really don't want to be confronted by these things. We want a Bible 
to just tell us what we want to hear. And that's not the way that God's revelation works. Okay, so what are some ways that we can learn to take the Bible seriously? Number one, study scripture. Study scripture. This is the opposite of the fortune cookie approach. Study scripture. One way to think about this is I am a big sports fan, especially the Portland Timbers. And I know so much information about the Timbers. I can tell you who's on the roster, who played last night. Uh, you know, my, my daughter and I will uh, try to predict the substitutions. When they happen, who will be substituted in, for whom, right? I know so much information. I know who they're playing next week. I know who they played last week. I can cram all that information in my head. But am I willing to devote the same amount of energy to studying God's word? that I do in learning all the stats and information that I do with sports. I encourage you, ask questions, seek out answers. Readers have pondered the mysteries of the Bible for centuries. My second piece of advice, read the parts of the Bible that you avoid or never read. Read the parts of the Bible you avoid or never read. We love Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, we love some of the stories in Genesis. We love the miracles. But are we reading some of these other parts of the Bible? And why are we avoiding them? We can grow deeper in our understanding of God if we're willing to pull the cobwebs away from some of these other texts. Thirdly, meditate on Scripture. What is meditation? It's not yoga it's not clear your mind. It's really focused attention on God as you engage with and ponder God's word and pray. Eugene Peterson uses the analogy of a dog trying to get every last bit of food off a bone, turning it patiently over and over again, looking for that last morsel. I created a little exercise for this message that I hope you'll find helpful. When I think about meditation, my mind naturally turns to Psalm 19, which many of you might be familiar with. I'm going to read it in a minute. But the language of Psalm 19 can seem kind of from another era, kind of old-timey. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, gives light to the eyes, sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. And I thought it would be a helpful challenge for myself if I tried to contemporize the language and to put it into the words of how we talk today, and when I did that, it, it cut me pretty deeply that I don't take the Bible as seriously as I should. And I'm hoping it'll have a similar effect on you, because sometimes our hearts need to be pricked in that way. It's easy to read the Bible and just be familiar with the way it talks, but it doesn't really challenge you for today. So I want to do this exercise and see if it affects you the way it affected me. So I'm going to read the NIV version, and then I'm going to read my version. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, 
than honey from the honeycomb. Okay, here's my version. The word of the Lord is everything you need. It's life-giving, like bringing a dead person completely back to life. What the Lord says, you can fully trust. No matter what you started with, it can fill you up completely. Its guidance is perfect, satisfaction guaranteed. Its advice is practical. You'll know how to live life well. There's nothing better than focusing your life on the Lord. You won't have any regrets. What the Lord calls you to do is good and right for your good and for all. Why are we so obsessed with chasing after money when we have this priceless book in our hands right now? Why do we scroll through Netflix and Prime looking for something interesting or decide between donuts or ice cream looking for something sweet when the gift of God's word satisfies so much better? When you hear it that way, that actually makes me want to read the Bible. It makes me think, gosh, is it sweeter than salt and straw? Does it taste better than Pip's Donuts? Because to be honest, that is what the psalmist is saying. That is what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is saying, you can find something deeply satisfying in Scripture if you're willing to dive in, if you're willing to taste the bread of life. Maybe you've never really spent time in the Bible That's okay, but this might be the nudge that you need to dive in. Maybe before the pandemic, you were in good habits and routines of reading the Bible, and you got out of them because life got crazy. You stepped away, but maybe now is the right time to start new habits. And you might be wondering, where do I start? I started in Genesis. I don't recommend starting in Leviticus. (laughs) But I would say today, you can't go wrong with starting with Jesus. Start with the Gospels, read a chapter a day, study, meditate, journal, ask questions, talk to God, talk to friends, listen. The beauty of the Christian faith is there's no secrets, no paying for upgrades, no special wisdom for the elite. Each of us has equal access freely to the Father, Son, and Spirit. This amazing book guides the way. Here are the words of life as Jesus told Peter, for you and for all. What's required of you is trust and stepping in. And I welcome you to experience God's word for yourself. Let's pray. Gracious God, we don't have all the answers to all our questions about the Bible, about Jesus, but we know that you've given us enough to listen to the calling of faith. Help us respond to that. Help us take your word seriously. Help us to live by conviction and form new and healthy habits today. If we feel something pricking our hearts today, help us to not ignore that sensation, but act on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to the table. If you have your communion elements, we have some in the back if you didn't grab any coming in, but if you have them, go ahead and get them out. 
Normally, we share the communion story from Paul about the night Jesus was betrayed, but I want to go back to John. Because in John, Jesus gives the teaching about being the bread of life and the one that we consume. I had COVID not that long ago. I'm okay now. I I have great immunity. But I was dependent on medication for part of it. And the thing about medication is it doesn't do you any good just having it. You have to consume it. Right? I can't just have it in my pocket. I can't have it in a bottle just in case. If I want that medicine to to affect me, I have to be willing to put it inside my body. And that's an act of trust, isn't it? Taking Tylenol or ibuprofen or another medication. It's an act of trust. When Jesus gives his bread of life teaching, he's inviting his disciples and followers to trust him. If you're watching from home, I encourage you to get some bread and drink out so that you can experience the tangible phenomenon of being invited into Jesus' life. When Jesus broke the bread and he invited his disciples to eat and drink of him, Martin Luther uses the language of a double experience of Jesus. Martin Luther talks about experiencing Jesus as gift. When Jesus gives his life for the world, his body and blood, it's free. It's a free gift for anybody. There are very few things in the world that are really, truly free. And Jesus says, there's no charge for this. This is gift. This is love. This is me reaching out for the life of the world. And so Luther says, when we, when we stand before Jesus, his first message, his first proclamation is gift. And so as you take the elements in a moment, think of it as Jesus' love gift to you. But Luther goes on and he says, but there's a, another side to the coin, a second piece to the person of Jesus, and it's invitation. Invitation to be changed. Invitation to be more like Jesus. Invitation to let go of self and sin. A willingness to be changed and transformed. A willingness to identify with the Nazarene that was despised and rejected. And so now when I take communion, I think of it as gift and invitation. Gift of life. Gift of breath. Gift of blood. Gift of eternal life. And as challenge and invitation to be changed. Go ahead and take the elements. And as you do, remember that great gift and invitation to faith.